Open up your Bibles this morning to the 12th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 12 this morning. These are beautiful verses that challenge us to a life of surrender. Putting ourselves as living sacrifices upon the altar of God. Putting ourselves into his hands so that he might use us. Use us in any way that he desires so that his will might be accomplished. Hopefully we'll expand your thinking along these lines as we take a look at this passage beginning with verse 1, Romans 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, who are many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing <clears throat> to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Let's pray. Father, anytime I stand up to preach your word, I know that I must do it with a reliance upon your spirit. That it is only as your spirit is in control that your message will come across. And so I just submit myself before you right now and ask that you would be in complete control, that you would take the words that are shared and that you would apply them in the way that you need to apply them in the life of every person here today that you would speak to their hearts, that you would deepen their commitment to you and to one another. And I pray that our lives would bring glory to you and honor to you. 
as we walk together in our relationship with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I said, we use these verses to challenge one another to a life of surrender. But to be fair to the context, we must observe that Paul is addressing Christians at Rome, in other words, the church that was at Rome, both personally and corporately. And he is telling them, and in so doing, telling us what it means to be a church, what it means to belong to one another, to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to have that sense of belonging to one another, to be a part of God's forever family. He's talking about that. He is sharing with them things that are important, telling us how we are to relate to one another and what it means to belong to the body of Christ. There is a growing trend. I've seen it through my life, but I see it even more predominantly today. It is a trend that is scary, quite frankly. A lot of people have decided that it's not important to belong to a church, and they feel like they're better off going it alone. In doing so, they avoid any commitment to others, and perhaps it is a fear of commitment that has resulted in this kind of thinking, because they're afraid of added pressure and added stress if they commit themselves to a body of Christ if they commit themselves to other believers and being involved in their lives, being a part of their lives. I think perhaps another reason is a fear of conflict. Well, you know, I, I have yet to see a, uh, a family, a marriage, or a church that has an absence of conflict. You get two people together, there's bound to be conflict sooner or later. That's just a reality of the nature of human nature. And so, do we isolate ourselves? Do we pull ourselves away? It's the same thing, the same attitude that says, well, I don't want to be affected by the world around about me, so I'm going to keep to myself, and we're going to form monasteries, and we're going to protect ourselves and watch out so that we aren't tempted by any of the, the sins in the world. No, God never intended us to live that kind of life. He doesn't want us to live a life that is apart from the world. He, apart from the world, yes, but not. we are to be in the world, but not a part of it. We are to be influencers in this world and not being influenced by the world. But if we're going to influence the world, if we're going to lead anybody to Christ, we've got to intermingle with them. By the same token, are there hypocrites in churches? Probably. More than likely there are. Certainly there are no perfect people in churches. And I usually tend to say, well, you know, the vast majority of the people are not hypocrites. They acknowledge the fact that they're imperfect. They know they're imperfect. And they blow it. We can get puffed up in pride, think of ourselves better than we ought to think of ourselves. And cause problems in that way. I feel that the benefits 
belonging to a body of believers far outweighs any of the possible problems. And so I want us to look at what Paul says in this passage because I, I, it, it's exciting when you get digging into it. He begins by giving us the basis for our fellowship within a body of believers, for belonging. The basis for committing to be a part of a local body of believers. It has to do with our individual relationship with God. It starts right there. It always does. Where we're going to have problems is when we're out of sorts with God. And it's going to carry over and affect our relationships with one another. But Paul is assuming, as he is talking to them, that he is talking to believers who have experienced the justifying and sanctifying mercies of God. They are justified before him, not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And God has begun a process of sanctifying them, a process of transforming them to be more and more like Jesus with each passing day. And it is on this basis of appeal that he, that he urges them to live a life of sacrifice in order to enjoy harmony within the body of believers, in order to enjoy ministry, the ministry that God gives to the local church. There are certain fundamental things that need to be a part of our lives. And it starts in verse 1 with the dedication of our bodies or our lives to God. The dedication of our bodies to God. Uh, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is not something naive or nebulous. It is not intended to be optional. Paul is urging those Christians at Rome, and in so doing, urging all of us down through the centuries, Christians throughout the centuries, to be totally dedicated to the Lord, to present themselves to him. If they're going to be a part of God's forever family, they need to be committed to God, first of all. That is the priority in our relationships. That is what will result in decent relationships with one another if we are committed to him. He expects us to love him and then to love one another. His appeal goes on in verse 2 to the transformation of our souls by God. Look at that second verse again. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He starts with the mind because that affects life. It is the way that we think that will affect our actions. If our thinking is out of kilter, one way or another, it will affect our actions. It'll either keep us from acting or it'll have us committing actions that we should not be doing. There's a twofold thrust in his appeal. The first is the refusal of worldliness. We are not to be living like everybody else in the world, following the pattern of the world. We should not be adopting all of their philosophies. We should be the influencers instead. And then there is the renewal that comes by being separated unto God. The renewal of holiness, if you want to call it that. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Do we renew our minds or does God renew our minds? I think we submit ourselves to him and he does that work in our lives. 
He is the one that does that renewing process. He's the one that does that transforming process. When those elements are there, when we are laying ourselves on the line in commitment to him and to his followers, and then when we are allowing him to transform our minds, there is a satisfaction in our spirits, in God. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we've got those elements, when we are dedicated to God, when we are being transformed by God, then there follows that in our spirit, we will, we will have a, a growing satisfaction in our spirits, in God. There is no more satisfying place on earth to be than in the center of God's will. No better place to be. We need to find a group of Christians who know this dedication, transformation, and satisfaction in their lives. And when we do, we will find the basis for oneness with them. We need to find that basis ourselves. We need to find it and we need to hook up with other believers. We need to be a part of just such a group. And I believe that this church is that kind of group. I believe that if God wants you and is speaking to you about being a part of this body of believers, then you need to commit yourself. Commit yourself first to him and then commit yourself to one another and go at it. But then Paul starts talking about the beauty of this oneness. In verse 3, he talks about the beauty of belonging. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Then down in verse 5, notice he says, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. There are a couple of important things if we're going to be a part of a body, a part of a family of believers. We must recognize our own individual humility. We are not to think higher of ourselves than we ought to think. That's a warning against self-exaltation, against pride. But he also implies a a warning against self-depreciation here. It's implied in when we think we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment. See, both extremes are wrong. Both extremes are wrong. And we are to seek a self-realization of our life in Christ in accordance with the measure of faith God has given us. Within the life of every believer, there is a redeemed and released self to become what God intends you to be. Are you experiencing that in your life today? This is what true Christian humility is all about. It's becoming what God wants us to be. It is becoming more like Jesus Christ. Once we realize that God doesn't make duplicates, only originals, 
We begin to get a little more comfortable with ourselves and we begin to not think of ourselves as better than anybody else. But we realize that he has a purpose for each one of us who has been saved and separated for his service and for his glory. The three smallest bones in the human body are found in the middle ear. And only when they are properly functioning is hearing possible. A surgeon was performing an operation on the third smallest of these bones for a man who hadn't heard anything in 26 years. The patient was under partial anesthesia. And as the surgeon was about to join the bones, he said, Howie, I want you to keep talking as I join these bones, and I want you to keep your eyes on me. The instant the surgeon joined those bones together, the man's eyes got as big as saucers. He said, what? What's that? What am I hearing? That's my voice I'm hearing. And tears started to go down his cheeks. The nurse took a piece of gauze and wiped away the tears. But you know, in the body of Christ, it doesn't matter how big or small you are. It doesn't matter how you think of yourselves. You are God's creation. He made you new, uniquely you. You have a unique purpose within the body of Christ. You may not be an arm. You may not be an eye. But you may be like the little bone in the middle ear. I love the story I heard years ago about the eye that wanted to be a foot because the foot was a mover. The foot was always going and doing and taking the body places that it could not go. And finally, God had us filled with that. And he says, okay, I will make you a foot. But all you're ever going to see is the inside of a sock. <laughs> Think about it. Without the eye showing us the world and showing us where to go, where's the foot going to take you? Where's the leg going to take you? We don't need to live that way. We must recognize our individual humility and our place within the body of Christ. Whatever it might be, however large or small it might be in man's perception, it's important in God's perception, just like the bones of the middle ear. We also need to recognize our interpersonal unity. Look in verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. As individuals, we are a part of the whole. In Jesus Christ, the church has an, an indivisible unity. Even though there may be human divisions, there may even be factions, God sees us as one. God looks at it as, as us as one. But more than this, in Christ, we form an indispensable unity. It is indispensable for our lives. Each member belongs to all the others. We need each other. 
The eye can't say to the nose, I have no need of you. The ear can't say to the mouth, I have no need of you. The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. We are indispensable to one another. We are indispensable. We are dependent upon one another. I use the illustration with the kids of the geese flying in a V formation. And I brought out all the different ways, the ways that they minister to one another, the ways that they encourage one another, but specifically with that V formation. They, they could fly 70% further. 71%, I think, was the actual figure than a bird flying alone. 71% further. Think about it. If we apply that to the church, then the church needs to learn that it is at least 71% easier to live the Christian life by flying with a flock. And you may think that you're flying with a bunch of bird brains, but that's okay. That's okay. It's better than flying alone. It's better than flying alone. But then there's a beauty of our stewardship. Stewardship, you're going to preach money? No, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about using the gifts that God gives to us. In verses 6 to 8, Paul details out seven different forms of stewardship which operate within the, within the church. No believer in Christ ought to think of themselves as better than another or their gift as being better than another. That spoils the fellowship of the church. It creates jealousy or it creates pride, depending on how you're looking at it. Every believer has at least one gift. I believe most of us have more than one gift. But the bottom line is, every believer in Christ has been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And I want us to consider these seven aspects that he brings out here. The first is the stewardship of preaching in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. He's talking about inspired preaching here. It is forth-telling rather than foretelling. It is proclaiming the message of Jesus. Paul defines prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14.3 where he says, Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. You see, that kind of a ministry builds up, stirs up, and cheers up the church. That's what's involved in the gift of prophecy, Stephen Olford says. The second one that he brings to our attention is the stewardship of serving. If it's serving, let him serve. That has to do with the, the business and administrative service in the life of the church. You know, sometimes it's mundane, material matters, but it goes beyond that. I mean, in the early church, it definitely had to do with the distribution of money and food, and that was performed by spirit-filled deacons. We need to recognize that the term deacon is a word for servant. They were servants, servants of the body of Christ. Third element here is the stewardship of teaching. If it's teaching, let him teach. That is a gift of exposition and interpretation of God's word. It's not limited to a preacher. No. I believe that we have godly teachers throughout this church. And given certain situations, I believe all of you become teachers to somebody else. 
Priscilla and Aquila possessed this gift, for example. They detected a lack of teaching, or lack of proper teaching, shall we say, in the preaching of Apollos. And so they took him aside. And it says in Acts 18.26, they explained the way of God more adequately. We need people that can explain God's word to us. We need people that, that can encourage us and, and to study God's word for ourselves. Then there's the stewardship of encouragement. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. Exhortation can be used in two different ways. It can spur people on, you know, like prodding them on, or it can woo them in. Basically, it's a ministry of helping to apply what's already been taught, but it's distinct from the gift of teaching. Then there's the stewardship of giving. It's contributing to the needs of others. Let him give generously, it says. I believe there is a sense in which all believers possess the gift to a greater or lesser degree, but I believe that it is a ministry that ought to be ought to be exercised with a singleness of heart and with a cheerfulness of spirit. For it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. We don't twist your arms. We keep records simply to pass them out to you to help you with your taxes. I don't look at the offering envelopes. I don't look at the records myself. I'm just human enough that I know if I look at them, I might be persuaded to think that somebody is more important than somebody else. And that would be wrong of me. And so I avoid that temptation. But we need to recognize that reality, that there is a stewardship of giving, that we are to give of ourselves, our time, our talents, as well as our tithes. Then there's the spirit, stewardship of leading. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. That gift applies to people that become the organizers within the church, the program directors, the committee chairmen. In the New Testament, it also had application to family life, that there are parents that ought to be giving direction to their children guiding them and instructing them and helping them to grow in the word. It also describes the office of the elder, which we equate to the office of the pastor. It all fits. And this kind of leadership is to be exercised with all diligence. And then the seventh one he mentions is a stewardship of caring. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. That includes Obviously, the care of the sick, the poor, the afflicted, the sorrowing. There are people that have this gift. And they need to be using it. And it needs to be carried out with a cheerfulness. Not with drudgery. But with cheerfulness. Not everybody has that gift. It requires a sense of humor sometimes. Because there are a lot of EGRs out there. Extra grace required. There are a lot of people that need a little extra grace. There's a little poem called The Smile. It needs so little sympathy to cheer a weary way. Sometimes a little kindness lights up a dreary day. A very simple, friendly word may hope and strength impart, or just an understanding smile 
revives some fainting heart. And like a sudden sunlit ray, lighten a darkened room. A sunny spirit may beguile the deepest depths of gloom. Then he, in verses 9 to 13, he talks about a beauty of our fellowship with one another. In verse 9 is the key verse there. Love must be sincere. He's exhorting us not to play church, but to be genuine and real in our fellowship of love. If there is any one characteristic that ought to characterize us as a body of believers, it is that we love one another. He then outlines the characteristics of love. In verse 9, he says, A love which is pure, we are to hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Dr. Graham Scroggin once said, True love is not present where there is not a moral recoil from evil. True love ought to bind us to what is good. Where there, where there is a sense of evil, there will be, that evil will be hated in proportion to one's adherence to that which is good. Love needs to be pure. Love needs to be pure. But love also needs to be personal. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Seek out individuals. Individuals. And love them personally. Love them as individuals. We need to give recognition and honor to all Christians without respect of persons. Everybody has value. Everybody needs love. And we need to demonstrate that love. We ask sometimes why God brings some of the characters into our church that he does. It's because he believes that he has a body of believers here that will love them. We need to be aware of that, be conscious of it, and do our part. But it's also a love which is passionate. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. There are three exhortations here. The Christian needs to be zealous in all that he seeks to do. Don't do it half-heartedly. We need to do it for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. The whole thought of this verse is that it needs to be a passionate love for the Lord Jesus Christ in every aspect of Christian service. No matter what it is you're doing, you're loving Jesus. You're loving him through loving others. There ought to be a love that is positive. We are to be joyful in hope in verse 12. Whatever the circumstances of life are, love ought to be optimistic. We ought to be able to see good even in the worst situations. Storms come and go. But we've got an anchor of hope. And that gives us a steadfastness if it is grounded in God's love. Praise God for that kind of love. And then it is to be patient. Patient in affliction. Whatever frustrations, whatever persecutions come, a person needs to endure. Somebody said, I'm frustrated. Somebody answered back, you're angry. I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. You're frustrated because you're angry. (laughs) Think about that for a moment. 
We live in days of busyness, hurry, pressure. We have lost the art of being patient. We have gotten so used to getting fast food that we don't know that good food takes time to cook. I'm learning that. I've got some new appliances in my RV. One of them I've been afraid of. I've got a combination microwave convection oven. Wednesday night, I went home with the idea I was going to cook a, uh, a French bread pizza. And I looked at the instructions, and it said, microwave it for so many minutes, preheat an oven to 300 and whatever, 375 or something, and then put it in there for another so many minutes. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm using the same oven for both things. How can I do that? And I thought, I can't. I determined yesterday that I was going to learn how to use that thing. And I reread the directions. And I saw the preferred directions that said put it directly into an oven at 375 degrees and cook it for 20 to 23 minutes. Then all I had to do was try to figure out how to put that oven at 375 degrees. <laughs> I figured it out. I figured out how to preheat it. I figured out how to, when it got up to temp, and I had a delicious lunch. A delicious lunch. I'm over my fear. Now if I can just figure out how to use the Instapot. Ah, I've got some people that might be able to tutor me here. That's good to know. When J. Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionaries in times gone by, asked what the greatest qualities for a missionary were, he replied, the first is patience. The second is patience. The third is patience. Sounds like what? Real estate values, location. Location, location, yeah. Patience. You're working with people. And I, and I thought back, well, I thought of it as love, but this is a love which is patient. That's part of love. One of my seminary professors, a professor of evangelism, said, do you love all the people? And you plow straight ahead. Love all the people and plow straight ahead. That stuck with me. Most important thing as a pastor is that I love the people. Friends, the most important thing for you as an individual believer, as a Christian, is that you love one another. That's how we will sh show the world what we're all about. And then he mentions a love which is prayerful. We are to be faithful in prayer in verse 12. That keeps all the other expressions of love in a good state of health. We need to bathe everything that we do in prayer. The effect of such prayerfulness in the life of the church is beyond, beyond computation. We cannot underestimate it. I was coming under that conviction toward the end of last year when I entered into that series where I was emphasizing hearing God because we so often think of, 
of our prayer life as talking with him. How many of well, there are a few of you that can do this. How many of you can talk nonstop for 15 minutes? Mike, yes, you're, that's what I said. There's a few of us that can do that. Average person can't. And so they struggle in their prayer life because they think, I've got to be talking all this time. And after I've talked a few moments, I don't know what else to say. Maybe that's the time you need to sit quietly and listen for God to speak. That's why prayer and an open Bible go hand in hand. You spend a little time looking at God's word. You spend a moment or two talking. An interchange. There are very few that can talk nonstop. Do I go half an hour? No, you could probably do half an hour, Mike. You're right. <laughs> it's not a gift either. <laughs> it's a fault. <laughs> but prayer is not all talking. Prayer is listening. It's a combination of the two. Our state convention has put an emphasis this year on prayer. You haven't picked up on that yet. And that's bringing me back. I'm praying about what direction I need to go with my preaching. And I keep coming back to the element of prayer. Because I think it is vital. I think it is vital for the health of our church. I believe it is vital for us as individuals. We need to be engaging God in prayer. Both talking and listening. Growing in our Lord. Our Lord Jesus prioritized it in his life. And then it is a love which is practical. Look at verse 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That is love in action, not just in word. The word practice could be translated pursue or follow after. Paul personifies love as it pursues people who are lonely, people who are without love in their lives, in a world where it would be easy to forget people. It would be easy to ignore people. We are to be, have our eyes open and looking for people that need to experience God's love. Old Bill was hired to sweep the streets of a small town in the hills. He was a friendly old fellow. And Miss Gidding, who lived in the corner house, got into the habit all that summer of taking him a glass of lemonade and a slice of cake. He thanked her shyly, and that was all. One evening, there was a knock at the back door of Miss Gidding's house. Bill was there. He had a sack of peaches in one arm and a handful of corn in the other, and he seemed kind of embarrassed when he said, I brought these for you, you ma'am, for your kindness. Her answer back to him was, oh, you shouldn't have. It wasn't anything. His answer to her was simple. Maybe it wasn't much, ma'am, but it was more than anyone else did. Your act of love may not be much, but it may be more than anybody else has done. How can we know the love of God in our lives? Romans 5.5, 5, Paul tells us, God has poured out his love into the hearts by the Holy Spirit, 
whom he has given to given us. So to know, to know and experience the release of that love, we've got to remove the limitations that prevent the flow of that love. Ignorance, prejudice, unbelief. But then we also need to renew the obligations or the commitment that promote the flow of the Spirit's love in our lives. We need to love with the love of Jesus. Friends, that's what it means to be a part of a church, to be a part of God's forever family. We are one. God wants us to act as one. We will have differing opinions, but we can still have unity. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day of approaching. See, it's not unique to our day and age. It was something that Paul dealt with even there in the first century. There were people that backed off. God wants you to be committed to Him and to one another. To love Him and to love the people with every fiber of your being. Let's pray. Father, we think we know what the church is. And then as we look at the church, we see the human element. And we think, oh, that can't be what the church is. But Father, you look at that same church and you love it. And you've seen fit to use the church as your instrument down through the ages to reach out to people and to share your love with others. Father, if it was good enough for you, it ought to be good enough for us. We know that we're not perfect. We know we've got faults. Each one of us is aware of our own faults. We try to hide them the best we can. But they are there. Doesn't matter what kind of a facade, a fake front we put up. We know the reality. And we ask you to start stripping away that facade. Transform our lives so that as we look in the mirror, we can love what we see. And as we look out the windows, we can love what we see. And help us to live a life that would bring honor and glory to you. As we love one another, as we reach out in love to this community, and most importantly, as we fall deeper in love with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.